Let's turn our Bibles to 2 Kings. 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 6. We're continuing in our study of the book of 2 Kings. And we're going through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, going through it. And we're up to 2 Kings chapter 6 and verse 8. And you know, there's a lot of good things back here in 2 Kings. A lot of things that you don't have anywhere else in the Bible. We're going to see some things today that you don't see anywhere else in the Bible. And you know, the Old Testament is valid for today, just like the New Testament. And it's the foundation for the New Testament. And so here we have 2 Kings chapter 6 and verse 8. Then the king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou pass not such a place, for thither the Syrians are come down. And the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him and warned him of, and saved himself there not once nor twice. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing. And he called his servants and said unto them, Will ye not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet that is in Israel, telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. Let's bow in prayer, O Lord, we pray that thou would open up thy word to us this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. And so here we have war. War, you know, the whole history of mankind is one string of wars, where one person tries to rule over another, another one country tries to rule over another. We got that going on in Ukraine today. Well, Israel had a lot of wars in its history, and here we have a war here with Syria. And God helped Israel here through Elisha. Elisha, God revealed to him exactly where the Syrians would be attacking and where they would be laying their ambushes. And so Israel had a huge advantage here over the Syrians. You know, that intelligence and warfare is a very, a very crucial thing. And if you have good intelligence, you're usually going to win. Uh, Frederick the Great, he said that, that if I knew my enemy's plans, I would always win. And he said, if my coat, I believe it was him that said, if my coat knew my plans, I'd take it out and burn it. Because it's so crucial to keep secret what you're doing in warfare. And, uh, you know, in World War II, the United States had a great advantage because we had better intelligence than the Germans and the Japanese. They had good intelligence, but we had better. Uh, the Germans came up with an Enigma machine that was, really was an Enigma for a long time. It would type out codes in a random way, and uh, we couldn't get through it, but then they had a, uh, a ruse where they got a hold of an Enigma machine uh, by capturing a submarine. And the United States knew their codes, and the Germans didn't know it. 
And so we had a great advantage. The U.S. had their ultra program in the uh, Pacific with the Japanese. They had great intelligence. That's how we won the Battle of Midway, because we had good intelligence. You know, in the Civil War, the big reason the Union won was because of a couple cigars wrapped with Lee's plan of battle. And somebody along the way dropped that, and the Union Army picked it up, and it had everything that Lee was going to do, his orders for his army. And the Union general got that, and it made a big difference in the war, because he knew what Lee was going to do. But even after he knew, he was only able to get a real, really a draw in the battle. But that was good for the Union at that time, and it was a strategic victory. Uh, when uh, Lee had attacked the North. And it was because of that victory that the Union had, because of those cigars and that paper, that, that uh, Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation and turned the war into a war for slavery, which it wasn't before that point. And he, uh, uh, that, at that turning point, and also at that point, England was considering recognizing the Confederacy. They were very seriously just about ready to recognize the Confederacy, and then the Confederacy had that reverse at Antietam, uh, and they gave up the plans of recognizing the Confederacy, which would have made a big difference. But intelligence is very crucial, and here Israel had great intelligence through Elisha. And then we go on here, verse 13. And he said, Go and spy where he is, that I may send and fetch him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host, and they came by night and compassed the city about. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, and host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, said unto Elisha, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And he answered, Fear not. Elisha answered, For they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Now, this is a very interesting thing here, that this God opened the eyes of this servant, opened him with spiritual understanding, and he was able to look around the city and see a huge multitude of angels, fiery angels with chariots, round about Elisha. And he had his understanding opened to the spiritual world around him. And you know, there is a spiritual world around us, and that's what we want to concentrate on this morning. The spiritual world around us that we can't see. You know, everything we see today passes away. This pulpit is going to pass away. This body is going to pass away. 
It's going to, get a, it's going to become different later on as a glorified body. Everything we see is going to pass away, as we've seen in the book of Revelation. But the spiritual things are eternal. And here this servant got that great privilege to see what was going on. And evidently, there was being not only the physical battle going on with the Syrians, but there was a spiritual battle going on there with the hosts of Satan and the hosts of God. And and so God was here protecting Elisha. And you know, there's always the spiritual world and the physical world, spiritual things and physical world physical things. We have our body. It's physical, but we have a spiritual nature within. Jesus was both spiritual and physical. Israel is both physical and spiritual. We're parts of spiritual Israel, but there is physical Israel, the descendants of Abraham. And so we have these things, and his eyes were opened. You know, that's what happens with us in salvation. In salvation, God opens our eyes to spiritual things. You know the great hymn, And Can It Be? It has a stanza of that hymn that depicts so greatly how it is when we get saved. The dungeon flames with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I went forth and followed thee. And that's what happens. The dungeon flames with light. God opens our understanding. And you remember Jesus said that he came to make those that see blind and those that are blind to see. And the people that thought they saw that were the religious leaders and the Jews, they were actually blind and he he told them they were blind. But the blind that were unsaved, he made them see that they might be saved. And so the young man's eyes were opened and this great spiritual world was opened up. You almost never see that in the Bible, where somebody is able to actually see the spiritual world. Then you go on here, verse 18. And when they came down to him, Elisha prayed unto the Lord and said, Smite this people, I pray thee, with blindness. And he smote them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. And Elisha said unto them, This is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom ye seek. But he led them to Samaria. And it came to pass, when they were come into Samaria, that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria." So here we have, we have the servant, he sees the physical world, or the spiritual world. And then here we have the people of Syria, the army of Syria, they are smitten with blindness. And you know, here is one of the negative miracles in the Bible. There are a few negative miracles in the Bible. With Ananias and Sapphira, they're stricken dead on the spot. With Elymas the sorcerer, he's stricken blind. And here we have the army of Syria is stricken blind on the spot. And, you know, we have the Pentecostals, Charismatics. They say, oh, well, hey, we're supposed to do all the miracles today that they did in the Bible. Well, are we striking people blind? No. Are we striking people dead? 
No. And uh, not all the miracles are done today. And in fact, we don't have miracle workers today. We have miracles done through prayer. So here we have a negative miracle. They're stricken blind. And Elisha says, well, I'll bring you to the man you seek. Of course, he was the man they sought. But he brought him into Samaria and then opened their eyes to see that he was there and they were in the middle of Samaria, in the middle of their enemies of Israel, the nation of Israel right there. And their eyes were opened. Well, what was the reaction of the king of Israel, seeing the army of Syrians being led in there and all blind, not knowing what to do, and they were all standing around with their weapons? Well, here was his big opportunity. And we have that in verse 27. I mean, 21. What is it? 21. And the king of Israel said unto Elisha when he saw them, My father, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? And he answered, Thou shalt not smite them. Wouldest thou smite those whom thou hast taken captive with thy sword and with thy bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And he prepared a great provision for them. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. So the bands of Syria came no more to the land of Israel. Now, so that army was brought in blind and the king of Israel wanted to smite them, to kill them right on the spot while they were defenseless, while they were blind. Was he allowed to do that? No, he wasn't. Well, you know, I thought all things are fair in love and war. Isn't that right? And it's all fair, and you could just kill these people there. But all things are not fair in love and war. And, you know, in war, it's not fair to kill somebody who has surrendered. It's not fair to kill defenseless people just because it's wartime, just because they're your enemy. And it says that right here. Thou shalt not smite them, verse 22. Shouldest thou smite those whom thou hast taken captive with thy sword and with thy bow? <clears throat> well, you know, back going back to the Civil War, a new uh, rule of war was inaugurated, and that was total war. And you know what that was? That was making war on civilians. And so Sherman, on his march to the sea, he completely destroyed everything before him of the civilians. He destroyed their farms, their crops, their animals, their houses, their barns, destroyed everything. And that was making war on civilians. In the past, before that, people would bother civilians, but they wouldn't make a practice of making whole war upon the civilians. But that was started back in the Civil War, and that was continued on. And you know, we're not supposed to be making war on civilians, on defenseless people. And that's what it says here, defenseless. Why was he not supposed to smite those people? Because they were defenseless. Because they were already taken. And we're not supposed to do that, even in warfare. Well... After World War II, there were uh, war crimes trials, and people were tried for, in Germany and Japan for making war on civilians. But what about the U.S.? 
in World War II. You know, uh, the U.S. in World War II has a lot to answer for because we made war on civilians and we killed hundreds of thousands of civilians. And you know, it was our practice in World War II with our bombers to try to create firestorms in the German cities and Japanese cities and create firestorms. They had napalm back then. And they dropped out on the city, and the city was made of wood, and they dropped the bombs right at dinner time, and the Japanese were cooking on open fires to have them knocked over and increase the fire. And so we did that. And, uh, you know, we made war on civilians. You know, I'm a, I love the United States, and the military is, is uh, necessary, but it's never good to make war on civilians and kill defenseless people. And, you know, in the firebombing of Tokyo, I was reading in, on MacArthur recently, but it had one point there. The Japanese decided that they would have a defense against the firebombing there in Tokyo, so they made these big uh, metal containers of water in between the houses there, and they, so they figured they would jump into those containers of water uh, when the firebombing was going on so that they would be saved. But uh, they said it didn't work because the fire was so intense, all they got was boiled to death. And, you know, it, it was bad. And, of course, with the atom bombs, the atom bombs, I believe, didn't need to be dropped. The Japanese were suing for peace at that point, and we should have waited on it at least. But anyway, it's never good to make war on defenseless people. And then when I was over in Germany, uh, I was talking to a German guy over there who was our, our, a pastor friend who was our guide, and he said in the monastery that Luther was in during World War II, it was a bomb shelter, and they had all the people down in the bomb shelter, hundreds of them, and they got direct hits from the bombs, and all of them were killed, or most of them anyway. And then I said, well, why would they bomb? I mean, I didn't really think about it at the point at that time. I said, why would they bomb the monastery there? It's not a military target anywhere around there. We weren't concerned with military targets. We were concerned with killing civilians, and that's the unfortunate truth. But anyway, here's where clearly says in the Bible that that's not a good practice. You can't kill those that are taken captive with your sword and with your bow, people that are defenseless. Well, that's a sort of an aside there. But anyway, we're talking about the spiritual world. The spiritual world. And there's a spiritual world around us. And we need to recognize that fact that whatever we see is going to pass away. And so what is the job of a missionary? A missionary's job is to go out and do spiritual work. That's really what his job is. I remember one time I was talking to some Indians who were in the States for a conference, and they asked me, well, yeah, what, what's the job of a missionary? And why is it that missionaries go out to the mission field and do a bunch of physical work, and they build church buildings, and they do things like that, aren't they supposed to be doing spiritual work? And that's very true. They should be doing spiritual work. That should be primary. You know, physical things that we do for people, build church buildings or, or social work, those are good, but they're good in their place, in their place. 
And in their place, you know, I think uh, when we're out doing mission work, it should be 80, 90% spiritual work and only 10 or 20% physical work. And so uh, the trouble is it's all reversed today. We've got so many missionaries going out and doing 80, 90% physical work and only 10 or 20% spiritual work. And now, you know, social work and helping people physically, how long is it going to help them? Well, it might help them a few years, might help them to the end of their life, might help them 50 years or 70 years or something like that. But how long will it help people if we help them with their spiritual life and get them to heaven? It'll help them forever. I remember a good illustration of that in the movie The Perfect Storm. I don't know if you've ever seen that. And it uh, has, you know, a big nor'easter and a bunch of huge storm in the northeast. And this fishing boat is out in that huge storm. And anyway, the perfect storm. And they're out in the, fish, in the fishing boat in the storm. And at one point in the, in the story, a guy gets snagged on the fishing line. And he gets pulled overboard down with the fishing lines. And that's a calamity there. And everybody scrambles, and then they finally get somebody to go rescue him, and they bring him back on board. And it's great that they rescued him. It's great. But how long did he get rescued for? He only got rescued for a few hours. Because a few hours after that, the whole boat sank, and everybody was killed. That's kind of like it how, how it is with social work. We do some good for somebody for a little bit, but it doesn't last very long. We need to see the great importance of the spiritual world over the physical world. So often the short-term missionaries, they go out and all they do is physical work when they go out. And I mean, it's good that they get out, they get to see the mission field, but it would be a whole lot better if they would go out and do some spiritual work, have Bible schools, uh, you know, uh, Bible clubs, or, uh, or help with something or other spiritually. And they do do some of that, but so, so often it's 80 or 90% building the buildings and 10 or 20% doing the spiritual thing. And so what we need to do is see that great spiritual work around us. Let's go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18. And see just one more verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18. It says, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are are eternal. We got to try to look beyond the physical things around us. And the problem is with our world and with the church today, we're all concerned with the here and now. The here and now. You know, the modern church is really concerned with the here and now. They're concerned with telling you that Jesus will help you with all your problems right now. He's going to help you with your relationships. He's going to help you with your sickness. He's going to help you with everything right now. And we're going to have healing services or whatever. But you know, they need to concentrate on the spiritual things on the hereafter. Not the here and now, but the hereafter. 
That's what's really important. And so few of the modern songs are sung about heaven. They just aren't sung about heaven because they're interested in the here and now. But the people all around us in the, in the world around us here in the United States are all interested in the here and now. They're not interested in other places, other people. No, they're interested in right here. They're not interested in heaven and hell. They're interested in right here. And they're interested in right now. They're not interested in any history in the past. They're not interested in what's going to happen in the future. They're not interested in in, uh, the book of Revelation or anything like that. They want to know about the here and now. And we don't want to be like that if we're Christians. We want to be interested in the hereafter, interested in things that we don't see. Remember we read the scripture there from Ephesians chapter 6. It talks about the Christian armor. And right there it says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And take unto us the armor. What kind of armor is that? It's spiritual armor. And our conflict is against spiritual principalities and powers. They're behind everything around us. They're behind the wickedness in this world. And so we take that armor. What does that armor consist of? Well, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the preparation of the gospel of peace on our feet, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The only offensive weapon we have is the Bible, the sword of the Spirit. And so all these things will pass away around us, but we need to have that whole armor of God that we may be able to stand in that day and stand against the wiles of the devil, stand in the day of judgment. We're all going to appear before God in that spiritual world, and we need to give account of ourselves to God. Well, that brings us to the subject of faith. Faith. What is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so we have to have faith in those things that we don't see around us. Faith in God. And so many people like to say, oh, I only have faith in what I see. Well, there's a lot of things we don't see. We have faith in a lot of things. You have had faith this morning that when you came in and sat down that the chair was going to hold you. And we have faith in a lot of things. And we need faith in God. We need faith in heaven and hell. We need faith to carry us through. And of course, first what we need to do is we need to pray that prayer of the publican, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then we get saved, give our life to the Lord, confess our sins, and then we can be with the Lord. And we see that by faith. God opens our heart to be able to say those things. You know, we're never going to come unto God unless he first works in our hearts and gives us that faith. That faith has to come from him. Well, let this be our motto as we go through life, to try to take our eyes not off this world around us. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's a hard thing to do. You know, when we're living in this life, uh, you know, we get used to this life, and we don't really know what's going to be in heaven. 
completely. We know a few things. We know we're going to sing. We know there's going to be some harps up there. We know there's going to be streets of gold. We know the things we studied there at the end of the book of Revelation. But we've never been there. We really don't know about those things. And we get so concentrated on the things around us, but we need to try to reach out to those things that are above. As I said before, I got a uh, uh, person across the street from me there in Smyrna, and they have a business there called Grounded Souls, and they want everybody to look down. But we don't want to look down and be grounded. We want to fly up to heaven and look above. Let's bow in prayer. Oh Lord, we pray that thou would bless these thoughts to our hearts. Help us to look at those things that are not seen, that are eternal. Oh Lord, we pray that we might pray that prayer of the publican. Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And oh Lord, help us to serve thee with our whole heart and mind and soul and body. In Jesus' name, amen.